0: Thank you. Well, good morning. Uh, Let me, once again, I don't think I see any children here, but I will warn you, this is a a sermon is rated R due to mature content. And uh, if you are squeamish or easily offended, uh, this probably is not where you ought to be for the next half hour or so. All right. So you've been you've been warned. If at this point you're offended, it's on you. doesn't matter. Sometimes we say that and it doesn't. And then you get the letter. I can't believe it. We told you. <laughs> Did the announcements before the sermon? We sent the email. All right. So we are in Romans, as we have been uh, since uh, the uh, fall. We are in the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we this morning are going to be dwelling in loving detail on one of the most offensive passages in all of Scripture. Y'all up for it? Chapter 1, Paul's letter to the Romans, starting in verse 24, we read, now let's begin in 18 just to give us a little bit, of, just to kind of give us a running start. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in their flesh the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They even make up ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless Patriots fans. (laughs) And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Tell us how you really feel, Paul. So, anybody who was here last week, what are the two most important things that we need to remember about that passage in particular? Number one, it's a setup, right? Number one is, it is a setup. This passage is Paul setting up his audience to get slapped on the face, right? Not to give too much away, when he turns the corner into chapter 2, what he is going to do is say to his audience, and here we have both Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome, he's going to say, and you, you who condemn all those nasty, wicked people doing all those naughty things, guess what? You do the very same thing. So where does that leave you? Looks like we're all in trouble, right? So the whole thing is a setup. So if you read this and you say, yeah, boy, those are really nasty, naughty people, you're basically putting yourself in the shoes of the people who are about to get slapped on the face, right? Then you're putting yourself in a position where Paul is about to turn the tables on you. Just fair warning, right? So maybe thinking ahead, you may not want to make yourself feel so stupid, You may want to take a little bit of a different approach to this. But what's the other thing we need to remember about this? Say that louder, BJ. That doesn't mean it isn't true. true. Just because this is a setup does not mean that what Paul is saying is not true. Just because it's a setup doesn't mean that what Paul is saying isn't true. Well, let's figure out how we deal with this. In a lot of ways, what we're looking at is how we deal with anything that we encounter in the Bible that we find difficult, right? Some people talk about how they always feel so comforted when they read the Bible, and I'm thinking, you're not reading much. of <laughs> it Because we're constantly, when we read this thing, we're constantly finding ourselves challenged and confronted. We're finding our cherished preconceptions undermined we're finding our own sinful nature revealed to us all the more starkly so when we find something in scripture that we don't like and quite often we do we have some choices to make don't we seriously right I mean, you know, you just kind of pretend the pages are stuck together, and you just kind of move on, right? You ever seen a lectionary? Many many churches will use a lectionary where they have uh, certain texts that they will, will have as the established text for the sermon for each week. And in most lectionaries, you'll see that they they skip a few verses. Usually, those are the ones that are really difficult and complicated. Just kind of skip over, it. We'll just sort of move on here, and say, no, I, "I didn't see anything." All right. Yeah, that's what you can do. You can skip it or not read it. Right in the first place. Another way, if you really want to make sure that the Bible doesn't bother you, you just never open it. Right. So that's one thing you can do. What else can you do when you encounter something in Scripture that you don't like? You can change it into something you like. I'm going to, I'm going to write these down. You can ignore it. You can change it. Ruth, what else can you do? Ah, you can. Explain it away. What else can you do, Louise? Say it to other ah, say it applies to other people. You can uh, do a sort of applicational jujitsu. <laughs> yes, Tim. It Diminish its importance. Yeah, oh. <laughs> it's almost like you guys have done this sort of thing. Yes, sir. <laughs> Con- Sorry, you can continue looking for why. Ah, okay. So you can continue to investigate. To investigate or to wrestle with it. So wait, I'm going to put this separate. Continue to investigate or wrestle with it. Because in, in some ways, there's one way where you can continue to investigate is where you hold a question open. That you know, you know is closed, but you're just going to kind of pretend that it's open because you don't really like the answer you found, uh, or yeah, you can wrestle with it. What else can you do? Yes, Ricky. <laughs> this is I, I, this is more feedback than we usually get. This is great. <laughs> okay, trust God with it. Okay, what else can we do? Yes, Nora. Uh-huh, so you can try to live into it, even though you find it difficult. Okay. What else? What else can you do? A very, very basic, simple one that you've nobody's mentioned. You can reject it, right? You can just say, oh yeah, well, sure it says that. And I disagree. If only God had asked me before he wrote that. You, you laugh. <laughs> but I've <laughs> I've talked to people, yeah, I kind of try to edge away from them when the lightning bolt hits. <clears throat> yeah, all these things we can do when we encounter something difficult in Scripture. Right? Now why do we do these things? For the most part, I think we do them for the reason that we're trying to avoid what Norm's talking about. Because in these texts, as difficult as they are, they confront us with something that is uncomfortable, something we don't like. Maybe it's something that addresses a cherished idea we have, or it tells us about something that we like to do that we shouldn't do, or that we don't want to do, that we need to do. And so we can use all these other strategies to try to get around wrestling with it, trusting God with it, trying to live into it, right? I think we're not supposed to be doing those things. I think we're supposed to be doing this kind of thing. But I do want to talk about the ways in which dealing with this particular passage, you find historically folks have done just these kinds of things. And sometimes it's useful to us if we're trying to understand how we should live, how we should interpret Scripture, how we should apply it, to look at examples of what not to do, right? Sometimes you look at the Bible and you read the story and the application is go and do likewise. Other times the application is go and do otherwise, right? Like most of judges, it's like what he did, don't do that, right? BJ, you were going to say something? Well, we can, yes, maybe. We'll, we'll get to that because if you're not confused now, um, let's see what we can do about that. So let's look at ways that folks have taken this passage. One way, which is the way, and I talked about this a little bit last week, one way that folks will will deal with this is they will say, See, Paul is telling all those nasty, wicked, naughty people what they shouldn't do, saying how bad they are and how you shouldn't ever do something like that. That would be the applicational jujitsu approach, right? Right? Say, see, this really isn't about me, this is about those wicked, mean people over there who shouldn't be doing what they're doing, and they're going to get it, right? problem with that is if you do that, you're missing the forest for the trees, right? You're also missing the fact that Paul is doing this whole thing as a setup, and you're going to look dumb when you find out, Paul says, guess what? You're guilty too, right? As Jesus says, you've heard it written, you can't do that, guess what? You even think about doing that, it's like you did it. Now who's in trouble, Right? You're going to take a speck out of somebody's eyes. Why don't you go take the log out of yours? Right? So that's one way you can do it. And there is certainly uh, something that is often done, which is simply to read it and say, yeah, I, I disagree. Paul said that, and Paul was just, you know, stuck in his bigoted first century rabbi mind and he didn't really understand what he should have understood, and if he could only talk to me, then he could. we could straighten him out. I'm just going to reject what he has to say. I'm going to say I disagree. And, of course, you can always ignore it, just not deal with it much. But there are much more sophisticated ways of dealing with this. And if you want to get any kind of style points, you can't just reject it or ignore it, you need to be able to explain why maybe it should be changed, why maybe it should be understood differently, why maybe if you only get the proper historical and social context, you would understand that what really is going on here is not that Paul is saying that people shouldn't be involved in these kinds of behaviors. No, he's saying something else entirely. There is a gentleman named John Boswell, who's a history professor at Yale University, professor of ancient uh, medieval history, mostly. Uh, wrote a book back in 1975, I think it was. Sorry, uh, 1980. Christian it was homosexuality, uh, Christianity, and social tolerance. His argument was that in this passage, what Paul is doing is criticizing people who are engaged in the wrong kind of homosexual behavior. That when Paul says that they were doing things that were contrary to nature, they were doing things that were contrary to their own nature in the sense that if somebody is gay and is in a heterosexual relationship, they shouldn't be doing that because they're acting contrary to their own nature. This is a line of argument that has been taken in some circles in biblical scholarship over the last few decades. Another line of argument that's been taken is to say, well, actually what Paul was talking about here wasn't homosexual behavior. He was talking about exploitive homosexual behavior. That when you see words in the Bible that refer to sexual perversion, that refer to homosexual activity, that you need to understand in their context that what those words really were referring to was exploitative sexuality, like, Heterasty uh, or uh, prostitution, male prostitution. Uh, so Paul's problem isn't with two consenting adult gay men. It's with people going to the gay prostitute. Worse, somebody who is a heterosexual going to a gay prostitute. So that's a line of argument that's been taken. The problem with these lines of argument is that they just don't work. It's difficult to find a New Testament scholar with any self-respect to stand behind these kinds of ideas. It takes a while. It took a few decades for folks to try to kind of crank these ideas through the grinder and say, well, maybe the problem is that we're reading these texts wrong. Maybe we're misunderstanding What's there? Maybe we should change our translations, right? Or maybe we should explain it as something else. Or, or or maybe we should recognize that it's really not relevant to us. It's it's only for some other people. The problem is that those just don't work, because the fact is, the teaching of Scripture on the issue of homosexuality is clear. It's consistent. And it's not really very complicated. It starts off in, well, really it starts in Genesis where God makes a man and a woman. But the verse that you often hear quoted that shows up first is the one in Leviticus. that says, A man shall not lie with a man as with a woman, for that is an abomination. Now, problem with just taking that and running with it is that there are a bunch of other things that are said to be an abomination, like wearing a cotton poly blend, for example, wearing socks with sandals. yeah I remember the story of a, uh, a a pastor who had had gotten a tattoo, and one of his elders was very concerned and you know there were breakfast and the elders said, "You know doesn't it say in the Bible that you're not supposed to to mark your skin with a tattoo?" And he says, "How are you enjoying that bacon? How are you enjoying that bacon? right? I mean, there are things in as we talked about when we were in Torah last year, there are things that we find in the Old Testament, in Torah and Leviticus, that don't necessarily apply directly. We have to understand them in light of what has happened through Jesus, right? We, and I'll, I'll refer you back to the first sermon on Leviticus if you want to go uh, download that off the podcast. But we can't just say, well, see, it says that, so therefore, that's it. No, that's not it. What we have to do is we have to look and see what we find in the New Testament and whether that does anything with respect to what we find in the Old Testament. Does that, do we find things modified? Do we find things that that have been declared as having been fulfilled and so now they're not relevant in the same way they would have been to somebody who is under the law? Uh, do we find things that are intensified in the, in the Old Testament? So, for example, um, the Old Testament polygamy seems to have been practiced. It wasn't really... Kind of cheered on, but it seems to have been part of the way that people lived and when you get to the New Testament, the the ideal for marriage that's upheld really is you know one man and and you know one woman right? as opposed to one man and a couple right um, So what do we find about homosexuality in scripture? well it doesn't show up many places, but it does show up also in Paul first Corinthians chapter six. Paul says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexual sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Again, Paul is not saying that if you ever do any of these things, then you're hosed for life. What he's saying is that these are the kinds of behaviors that are not consistent with living in God's kingdom. And the two words that he uses there that have been the subject of much debate are malakoi and arsenikoitai. These are translated all sorts of different ways. Does anybody have anything other than NIV right here? You want to tell me what you got there in, in uh, verse uh, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians? After the word uh, adulterers. Uh, sorry, chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. Male prostitutes? It should be two words. Male prostitutes, what's the other one? Sodomite, ooh, sodomites—that's old school. Which one is that? New Revised Standard. Wow, six nine. First Corinthians six nine. Male prostitutes, sodomites. Anybody else? Will, what are you pulling up there, brother? New American Standard. What does it give you? Fornicators. Homosexuals? Homosexual offenders? Okay. Abusers of themselves with men. Ooh, which one is that? That's American Standard. Yeah, there's a reason why the American Standard version never really caught on. Uh, Yeah. So the the word malachoy has a sense of referring to somebody who is soft or effeminate, Like, for example, Tom Brady. Um, and uh, "arsenakoi is basically a very, very, very simple compound word in a lot of ways. Uh, anybody know what the word "coitus" means? "Coitus" is intercourse, right? "Coitus" comes from the Greek "koitai," which is simply to, literally, to lie down. But you could also say get laid. Uh, Arson is a dude, right, a man. So arson koitai is to get laid by a dude. Now, in the first century, the way that these words often were used was to refer to, for want of better terms, the catcher and the pitcher, in a homosexual relationship. What's that? Oh. Uh, So the idea was that Paul is criticizing both the people who were habitually wanting to be penetrated and those who are wanting to do the penetrating in homosexual relationships. People have tried to say, no, really what he's arguing against is people who are abusing boys or people who are uh, selling themselves out as prostitutes, to be penetrated. But again, that argument has not held up well. That word arsenikoitai shows up as well uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 10. Paul says adulterers and perverts, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel, of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So perverts is the word that the NIV uses to translate Arson Koitai in uh, chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Anybody have 1 Timothy 1.10? Anybody have something else? Fornicators and sodomites, Fornicators and sodomites again. In NRS, we really like sodomites, yeah. Yes, or... Right, right, and actually, what you do see developing in Greco-Roman circles, um, in the Gentile world, is, is is a greater tolerance on the part of the very uh, wealthy, the elite, the one percent, or whatever, to sort of do whatever they want to do in this regard. Um, the other place you find homosexuality mentioned in, in the New Testament is in the Epistle of Jude, Jude seven. Uh, he says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. I've got to hear what the NRSV says. Uh, 7, Jude, verse 7. Please tell me they have sodomy. Pursuit unnatural lusts. Dang it, I was hoping they'd get the trifecta and I'd get sodomy in that one as well. Yeah. Jude verse 7. Yeah? Anybody remember the, the story of Sodom from Genesis, right, where, where Lot shows up and the uh, townspeople want to give him a special welcome? Namely, they want to drag him out from the home that he's staying in and, uh, and gang rape him. And Lot, ever the gentleman, says, Hey, um, I got these two daughters. <laughs> How about you have them? lot does not end up looking very good in Scripture, but yes. Now, Sodom had a whole lot of things wrong with it. Elsewhere in Ezekiel, you read that Sodom also was guilty uh, of of, uh, economic exploitation, but this particular type of sexual perversion classically was linked to Sodom, which is one of these cities that ended up getting destroyed. So you have, in all of these situations that we find it in Scripture, homosexual activity, not being endorsed, right? Anybody want to dispute that? Right. Now, what you may hear some people say is, well, yeah, but what about Jesus? Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, which is not exactly true because when he's disputing with the Pharisees about divorce, what does he say? He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, right? The, the idea of, of heterosexual marriage is one that that Jesus upheld that was understood to be natural, that was understood to be proper, that was understood to be the way things ought to be. And the reason for this is that this was the way that Jews in the first century thought, right? So what you find, if you look, for example, in, in uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is a community uh, uh, that was in at Qumran out in the desert. Uh, they were, uh, in fact, very uh, strict about this. They had uh, the attitude that if if a person walks around naked in front of his fellow man without needing to, is going to be punished for six months. In fact, they would say if you're in the meeting and even if you just sort of accidentally flash somebody, uh, then you're punished for ten days, right? Of course, you know, Oh, thirty thirty days, I'm sorry. Um, Now, these guys were kind of harsh. Whoever giggled inanely causing his voice to be heard would also be sentenced to thirty days. But there was concern for ensuring that, uh, that this behavior was, would be prevented in that world. You find this in, in uh, Jewish writings from the intertestamental period, that is, during the time between the Old and New Testament. Uh, you, you find in the, uh, there's a, a letter, the letter of Aristeus, which comes from the Jewish community in Alexandria in the 2nd century B.C., or B.C.E., if you prefer. He says that Jews are morally superior to Gentiles because Gentiles not only draw near to or procure Males, but they also defy defile their mothers and even their daughters. Around the same time, you have this document called the Sibylline Oracles. Their fear is that when the Romans come and dominate the world, immediately compulsion to impiety will come upon those men. Male will have intercourse with male. They'll set up boys and houses of ill repute, will throw everything into confusion. But Jews, on the other hand, the writer says, are mindful of holy wedlock. And they don't engage in impious intercourse with male children, as do the Gentiles, transgressing the holy law of immortal God. And they avoid adultery and confused intercourse with males. And there are a few others like this that I'll let you read if you really want to. But the, the point is that when Paul wrote what he wrote in Romans and in 1 Timothy, when Jude wrote what he wrote, he was writing against a backdrop of an understanding on the part of his culture the culture of the people to whom he was writing, that clearly understood that the one true God of Israel was not a fan of homosexual activity. That, in fact, he had made men and women to be complementary and to come together in complementary union in marriage and that that was the way that human sexuality was to be expressed. That expressions of sexuality outside of that context whether it be adultery or premarital sex or bestiality or fornication. That's another nasty sounding word that's just premarital sex, but it sounds a lot better to say fornication. Whether it's homosexual activity, whether it's open marriage, all of these things are contrary to God's design for human sexuality. Now, Just because we've established that and just because we have avoided the temptation to reject it or to ignore it or to try to change it or try to explain it away to diminish its importance to try to hold open a question that really shouldn't be held open anymore. Just because we've established that doesn't mean that we've done all the work we need to do. I mean, because if that's all we do and especially if you're one of the people and we are in the majority who don't find themselves drawn to that particular type of sexually immoral behavior, it would be easy to simply say, well, obviously that's about somebody else and they shouldn't be doing that. I don't do that. They shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, but what about you, Paul says? What do you do? As we wrestle with this, teaching, as we trust God with this teaching, as we try to live into this teaching, we have to make sure that our focus is not on understanding what other people ought not do, because that's too easy. And again here, I think Paul is talking about a particular type of disordered sexual desire, but all of our sexual desires are disordered. All of us are broken in some way sexually. We all have different things that we're interested in that are outside of God's best for us, that are in conflict with what God teaches is the way that people should express themselves sexually. The easy way is to be clear about what other people shouldn't do. But the work that God calls us to, I think, once we're done with our little scholarly tantrum trying to make something mean what it doesn't say, is to say, all right, God, what is it that you have to say to me, not to somebody else? What is it that you have to say to me about my brokenness? What is the ideal you have for my life that I'm not upholding? Where is it that I need to repent? Where I need to trust in Your grace? Where I need Your mercy, Your Spirit to help me live into what You have for me? That's true when we reach the easy passages, the things that are straightforward. And it's true when we face the complicated and difficult and sensitive and awkward passages like the one that we've just spent a half an hour with. If we read Scripture and our first thought is, yeah, they shouldn't do that, I think we're missing the point. I'm glad next week Josh Glazer from Regeneration Ministries is going to be here. He's going to talk more about what it looks like for us to live into the redeemed sexuality that God has for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that when we find things in your word that are difficult, we face the temptation to reject them to ignore them, to try to change them, try to explain them away. We confess that even if we do come to an understanding of what you have said, that our desire is to make it somebody else's problem, not our own. We confess that there are things that we find in Scripture that comfort us that should be bothering us. We confess that we can try to block out the sound of your voice convicting us of our sin. Lord, in respect to this one particular issue that is so controversial, so awkward to talk about, so unwelcome as even a topic of discussion in polite society, we pray that we would be faithful to look deep into your word, open our minds and hearts to what you have to say, That we would trust you, not ourselves. That we would receive your teaching with gratitude, looking first to understand where you have something to say to us. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to submit ourselves to you, to undergo the kind of transformation that you want to work in us. Help us to pursue that with humility, with a deep, deep appreciation of the love that you have for us, because we know, Lord, that you tell us how to live, not to take our fun away, but because you want to give us life and life abundantly. We thank you for that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.